You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years ago. This is Emeritus Rex. We've been away with, from sorry, by Pupkar. But Pupkar has not been with us and not graced us. So much has happened since we've last met face-to-face like this. Um, first of all, of course, we, we need to mention that we are still in the shadow of a terrible terrorist shooting last night in Tel Aviv. Um, I, I know that there were a number of people injured um, in a very severe condition. Um, I don't know if, if any of them have succumbed to their, to their wounds, uh, but this is really following uh, a number of uh, weeks that terror has been has struck in the in the Eretz Yisrael in a number of places, um, and uh, there was, of course, the uh, stabbing of uh, Israeli border guard by a 13-year-old Palestinian, uh, and there was in the end of February the two Yaniv brothers on their way on. I guess that's the only highway you could really get there on Route 60 in Eretz Yisrael to get to their. Moshav and Har Brocha, they were, um, uh, their car was smashed into, and Palestinian terrorists uh, shot them. That engendered a response from an area of Moshav called Eviotar, um, where, according to reports, uh, a mob was unleashed. Um, let's start there, Rabbi Pupko. Um, let's start, uh, um, you know, it seems like the Netanyahu government is taking heat on all sides. But for mismanaging the uh, the uh, the settlers' response, um, supposedly they came into town, burning homes and just shooting people in the stomach. Um, not just content in finding the uh, the murderer, but actually just wreaking havoc in the, the city of seven thousand. And supposedly the the Israeli army um, sort of allowed stuff to happen. And now they're sort of like in, in, in a little bit of a uh, difficult situation in terms of explaining things. What happened is that since May 2021, when Hamas suffered uh, terrible uh, losses in its last conflict with Israel, Hamas made a strategic decision, uh, uh, 
which was that they would avoid, at least in the short term, uh, conflagrations, direct conflagrations with 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 Israel, uh, to avoid having Gaza, you know, hit again. And instead, they've invested their time and energy and resources into funding terror in the in what they call the West Bank. And uh, and they've been uh, successful at this. That means the new groups you hear about, like Lions Den and others, this is a direct result of Hamas and Iran funding and supporting and encouraging and provoking terror uh, in in Shomron and Judea and Samaria. So the, so the uptick has has a direct cause. I mean, there's a reason for it. Uh, the reason is again Hamas wanting, and also Hamas eventually you know has designs on taking over. Uh, the West Bank and, and, and you garner popularity in certain segments of the Palestinian Authority by being at the forefront of the struggle, right? Meaning killing Jews. And so, um, uh, and Abbas is old and people are talking about transition. It would be an opportune moment for them to assert themselves. So the, the violence has to do with that. Now, in terms of the, the Jewish response, so listen, no civilized person, uh, of when I was uh, was ha- was happy to see uh, Israeli violence, Israeli civilian violence against uh, Palestinian uh, civilians. Um, the Israeli army, from what I read, and again, I, I, I don't claim to read everything or know everything, uh, actually was there in, in protecting Palestinians. Whether they could have intervened earlier, I haven't heard that before. I don't know, but uh, but they but they were there protecting. There were images of them escorting Palestinian women and children away from the violence and protecting them. It was a horrible spasm of violence. And it, it has no excuse. And even to provide the context, sounds like you're giving an excuse, so I'm reluctant even to provide context. But I, I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, giving a comprehensive picture and understanding the, 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 what's going on there is that the settlers at times feel unprotected. But more importantly, I think they feel that in general, the Israeli army, which balances different concerns, uh, in their mind, haven't been aggressive enough in punishing the Palestinians for their terrorism. That segment of the settler population that believes that uh, collective punishment is the only way to really disincentivize the violence is to uh, is is to engage in certain degrees of collective punishment. And now let me explain what I'm. Mean. Let me explain their justification. And again. My ability to explain it in no way implies agreement with it. Um, their their uh, their justification is that the society produces this. The society encourages the violence, rewards the violence, it hallows the martyrs, right? Uh, that fall in the violence. So if the society is encouraging, provoking, educating, and rewarding, then you have to punish everybody. That's the justification, and and that, that's one part of their argument. The other part of their argument is that the Israeli army doesn't do enough, as I mentioned. Now, the Israeli army always has to balance two things, which is the direct security, right, and, and pursuing the terrorists, which they do with extraordinary skill, diligence, and, 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 and ethics. I mean, the Israeli security services are unmatched in their skill and unmatched in their ethics, not by a matter of degree, but it's a, it's a whole different, it's a difference in kind, boy, the Israeli army conducts itself in Yudon Shemron than any other army would in any comparable situation. They do so in a targeted way to limit casualties on both sides. They do everything they can. But their other concern is 
to keep things calm, right, in general. So they feel that some of the tactics that the more right wing would propose may give you certain short-term gratification, but at what price? And the price is, um, you know, further uh, uh, antagonizing the Palestinians where the attacks will become more frequent and more deadly. Uh, Again, the right wing would counter with their argument that the only way to really put an end to this is to as they say, they only understand strength. And you got to bash them over the heads. And them, I mean them, in the plural, not just the terrorists. Well, so, let me just jump in here for a second. Uh, you know, I think there, it's been documented that the settlers from Eviatar, uh were trying to ram uh, a number of soldiers <laughs> with their with their vehicles. Right. That to me is is uh, I, I I cannot. So what, what, what I'm saying is, is that we know there's a double standard. We know that, let's say, and I'm going to you know, perhaps open this up here. We know that, let's say, if um, uh, you know, two black men uh, were, were murdered uh, terribly by some uh, white supremacists in some sort of um, compound, we know that if, the, if there would be a, a, a response from the African-American community from the black community, and they would go on a rampage, um, there would be a certain perhaps sense of understanding. Uh, it, it would not be condoned in all quarters, but we know that the Western press and the liberal press would somehow say, well, you know, we, we have to solve this intractable problem. But that doesn't happen for the Jewish people, and it never will. Uh, so the idea that well, you know, like you're saying, Rabbi Popko, that we haven't been protected enough and that these cities, whether it's Hawara or Shem or any of the places uh, that uh, the terrorists are seeding the terrorists or the lion's den or whatever it is, um, we can't just explode in frustration when as the two wonderful young men are just shot for no reason. Um, and, and therefore, whereas I think other communities can get away with the type of burning, looting, and, 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 and violent expression, we can't. Because once we do that, we lose the moral high ground. Listen, and- I, I, I'm not worried about moral high ground. I'm not worried about how the world perceives us. I'm not, and none of that concerns me. What concerns me is doing the right thing. No, no. And, I, I, and it's wrong. It's, it's wrong. Of course, of course. But I'm, I, what I'm saying is it's such a bad, the optics are so bad. And, and it really, in a way, takes away, as you were indicating, from the, the significance of the deaths of, 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 of those wonderful And again, it's not for the first time, I hope it's the last time, where you've seen some of the settlers turn on soldiers, which is just an ugly thing. And it has to do with, again, I, I'd hate to repeat stuff that we've talked about before, but the reality is that for the second, Gaza, right, when you talked about it goes, these back Gaza, it goes back to the Gaza disengagement, where members of the right-wing community have lost faith in the in the in Israeli institutions. I mean, I, I'll tell you something. I, you know, first time I went to Israel, um, it was I was ten years old. It was 1968. It was uh, a year after the Six Day War. Uh, I walked around with an autograph book, asking uh, every soldier I saw for their autograph. And I, to this day, I can't look at an Israeli soldier anywhere in the world without feeling enormous pride, enormous respect for every Israeli soldier. 
and for the people who are like me, right? Observant Jews turning on an Israeli soldier in the land of Israel. I, I it's to me it's unconscionable. I can't it doesn't fit into my universe. It doesn't I can't it doesn't fit it's, it's indicative of a, a pathology that I don't think affects the majority of those who live in the Yudhamron, much less than a majority, but it's a minority and it's a minority that's growing and uh and it's profoundly disturbing. Profoundly disturbing. Um you know before we moved on to things that are perhaps less morose, um, do you think that this these type of events, obviously we'd like a, something to a settlement to happen, does this indicate that perhaps um, the average Israeli should not really be on these roads at all? I mean, these boys. Well, I think- I think Harama is a unique place um, because it's the one. It's the there's a road there that. Uh, that Israelis must travel on to get from one place to another. Anyway, it, it, and it's the one place where there is literally a, a, a Palestinian village abutting the road, and it's a it's the one place. So they're building a bypass road. Uh, they're they're building a bypass road now to secure it. Listen, um, you the reality is turning back the clock is not a possible thing, and turning back the clock to pre Oslo days. Before too many in Israel embraced the Palestinian narrative and emboldened the Palestinians and put the Palestinian Authority there, you can't do that. I mean, you could theoretically, but you can't. You can't. You know, to, to go in there and decapitate it, it just it doesn't it won't work. And we're paying a price for the serious mistakes of the 1990s. We're paying a serious price. We're paying a price in Gaza for the mistakes that took place about 17 years ago in the disengagement, and. Um, and, and it's a tra- and, and 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 right now Israel is in a status quo deadlock uh, with the Palestinians, uh, a, a crisis that can't be solved but can only be managed. And the Israeli army, the Israeli governments, have, you know, in the, through through the years, in the last thirty years or so, have been trying to navigate a very dangerous world, where you know Israeli soldiers are making almost nightly raids into places like Jadina and Nablus to, to to you know to. To arrest and apprehend uh, terrorists often ends uh, in, in bloodshed. Uh, it happened in Janine, and happened in Nablus, and it'll continue to happen. But uh, is that, thank God they do what they have to do in order to l- limit the violence directed against Jews. Well, it's, you know, it's, 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 they are remarkably successful, but not completely successful. But look, you know, the point I was making about you know Zahirut about traveling in these areas and and, and the government's attempts to create a safe safe passage and safe travel, I guess is belied by the fact that even in the middle of Tel Aviv, right. you, know, you, you can't be safe. Uh, right. No, it, it's a, uh, it, listen, we're, uh, you know, uh, Israelis overwhelmingly have given up any fantasy of, of resolving the Palestinian dispute. Uh, thankfully through the skill of people like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, they've been able to, uh, uh, you know, form relationships, diplomatic ties with uh, Arab countries in the Gulf. Uh, Wall Street Journal reports that things with Saudi Arabia are even moving uh, uh, forward, even during this period. And, um, and, 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 you know, and so the, Bibi's vision is peace from the outside in. Maybe it'll pay off. I mean, I think the ultimate... Right. Well, let me just, let me just uh, comment on the Saudi Arabian, you know, the movements towards Saudi Arabian's peace treaty. But there's also, I think, the news today that Saudi Arabia is is restoring, reconnecting with Iran. 
Right. So that's pretty strange. You know, on one hand, we have these sort of stealth negotiations about Saudi Arabia and Eretz Israel and Medina Israel. At the same time, we have Iran, who we know uh, is, 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 is funding all this terrorism. Iran today is, is on the ropes, but not on the ropes. What I mean by that is internal dissent in Iran uh, is, uh, is, it has never been stronger since the Islamic regime came into power under Ayatollah Khomeini. And, um, uh, and they've lost the loyalty of, of, of a broad segment of society. You would have clerics criticizing the regime. On the other hand, they've never been stronger in some, in, in, in some ways, given that, you know, the, the deal they made with, with Obama, uh, gave them the funds and access to funds necessary to spread their power in places like Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon, and Yemen. Uh, and and that, that makes them dangerous. The, the stronger alliance they now have with Russia is deeply disturbing. It may hamper Israel's ability to take out Iranian sites in Syria if the Russians are, you know, if the Russian-Iranian thing remains tight. Right now, Iran is delivering weapons to Russia. Russia has said they're going to sell uranium to the Iranians. That's a very dangerous thing. So the so when Saudi Arabia restores diplomatic relations with Iran, you know, I, I'm not sure it'll go. I'm sure it won't go past that. Iran views, I'm sorry, Syria, Saudi Arabia views Iran as its ultimate enemy in the Middle East. Yeah, so they're restoring some modicum of diplomatic relations, but Saudi Arabia knows that its interests lie where Israel's interests lie. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the Biden administration spent, uh, spent uh, you know, has to repair relations with Saudi Arabia because Biden spent his time campaigning for president bashing uh, the Saudis. And he has too many people in the administration, holdovers from the Obama uh, uh, time in office that, you know, view Iran as somehow part of the solution to bringing stability to the Middle East, which is, again, uh, of the bizarre fantasies of the last number of years. But Saudi Arabia and Israel have are, are bound together by very strong mutual interests in confronting Iran and, 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 and staving off any threat from Iran. So there's, there's more. So. You know, to figure out what what the American administration is doing is is not easy, because on the one hand, there have been a multiple joint exercises between uh, America and Israel. Uh, seemed, that seems to be training for uh, an assault on uh, on Iran. On the other hand, there are credible media reports that all the visits we've been seeing by defense officials from the U.S. to Israel are not about cooperation and confronting Iran but are about convincing the Israelis not to attack Iran. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard to know what exactly is going on here, but uh, I, I don't think the Saudi-Iranian announcement this morning really changes much. I think it's just a way to, you know, for people to pick up the phone and talk to each other if they have to. But uh, Saudi Arabia's interests are, are, are you know, aligned with Israel. I think both of these topics that we've mentioned, I guess the commonality is the connection between um, uh, Jews and Arabs, um, and can there can be can there be coexistence? I think the, one of the uh, it was uh, a point was struck by somebody who passed away uh, this past week, Chaim Topol, um, the uh, uh, every, who most Americans know uh, as the choice Norman Jewison's choice for Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof. Most people in America hadn't even heard of him, uh, Chaim Topol, who was known as Topol. Uh, Topol, um, and I'll talk a little bit about him, but he, he pointed out, you know, that one of the things he did uh, for the last 15 years uh, was devote himself 
to the Nahar Kfar Yarden, which is a camp for children with serious illnesses, um, whether it's a, a kidney disease, whether it's cerebral palsy, or other things that make the children feel or uh, that they are pariahs and they're not like everyone else, whether it's children with uh, life-threatening uh, cancers, um, a free camp that these children can attend. And this camp is really open, was open not only to uh, Jewish children, but open to all children in the area. And Topol would speak about the fact that that the Arab children, the Jewish children, uh, would play together, would interact together, uh, would find a common ground. And he would say often that if you leave the politicians out of it, he really believed in uh, that type of common humanity. Now, one thing I also want to say about Topol, and I know you want to, you'd like to say some words about him as well, is that unlike a lot of other actors and, and, and people who had been very famous, that they had to hold on to the Breto is themselves. I mean, he realized, look, <laughs> once he hit his 70s, he pretty much figured out that he wasn't, he didn't have to push himself. And he decided, like his good friend Paul Newman, of course, whose father was Jewish from Cleveland. I know you were just there. <laughs> Shaker Heights, actually. Uh, but, but Paul Newman dedicated a good aspect of his life as the last act of his life to charity. Not only, you know, with, with Newman's uh, products like the salad dressing and other things, but a number of camps. And it was actually a camp in Connecticut for children uh, like this that Tuple got the idea to do it in Eretz Israel, and they're part of that same network. And, you know, Newman, but when Paul Newman died, he said, you've got to, uh, one of the things you need to work on is making the world a little bit better of a place than it was than before you came into it. And that's what you have to try to do. And Newman was a, an adulterer. He was a drunk. Uh, his son, unfortunately, you know, overdosed on drugs. He was not a paragon. He wasn't a tzaddik, but he learned from, the type of beatings that the world gave him. And he, at the end of his life, he, and I, I loved seeing the video where Tuple says, it, yeah. it, it, it really was great. And we all remember Newman, of course, even though he was halakhically not Jewish, he considered himself a Jew. You don't remember this. I think you do. But he actually came to Ner Yisrael with Joanne Woodward when we were there. And he came, uh, and he was actually, people saw them, like, yeah. walking around the yeshiva. I don't know what was in Newberger's mind, exactly. But but somehow he figured, you know, let's tap into Paul Newman. He probably saw uh, <laughs> that there was this in, incipient uh, philanthropy that Newman was engaged in. And they brought, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic that uh, somebody recognizes that you can use your fame and publicity to actually help um, and it's it's in a way quite quite positive. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Topol? I want to talk about Zero Mostel first. <laughs> okay. Well, let's 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 mention the fact that there was a, a choice, right, to, to use Topol and not Zero Mostel. Even though Zero Mostel had really originated the part on Broadway, and right. it was very broad in his gesticulations and how he did it, they really wanted a, a sort of more of a toned down version. Of Tevye, but you would have you you thought Zira Mastel was a superior uh, Tevye. No, I, no, I th- listen. I think it's interesting that uh, Norman Jewison chose. Um, Who wasn't Jewish, by the way? Norman Jewison was not a Jew. Right, the Canadian. He's Canadian, but not Jewish. Right. <laughs> um, you know, listen. Um, 
so everyone, many people expected Zero Mostel to get to get the gig, but um, uh, but but he gave it to Topo. Is by the way, you know where Zero got his name? Where he got the name Zero from? It's a very funny story. His he was the seven. He was the youngest of seven children, and he never took school very seriously. And his mother used to say to him, "You'll be a zero if you don't get an education." And like as a uh, as a way to I don't know retribution. I don't know what it was. He took the he took it as a nickname. Yeah, yeah right? His yeah, mother yeah. said he'd be a zero. Look at me now. I'm zero mustel. You know. Um, but he was actually born. I think it was a very traditional family, zero mustel. But when it came to, I mean, it's interesting that. That Chaim Topol got the, got the job, and, and again, Norman Jewison explains why about his earthiness and his emotional. But you know, but Topol was born in Israel in the 1930s. Yes, yes, a, a pure Israeli, a pure Israeli. In other words, if you look at their resume, you would assume that Mo, Zero Mostel was more fitting for Tevye, Eastern yeah. European roots. Well, I have to go, let's talk about that that film, which was in 1971 when when Fiddler on the Roof hit the big screen. They actually went to Yugoslavia. Uh, and they right. built on a Tefka. Right. Part of what Jewison was trying to do was to make it verite. He wanted it, he didn't want it to be a stage play. He wanted it to actually look like it was happening in a shtetl. And therefore, you know, I, I think he wanted someone that it, it, it wasn't so mannered and obvious uh, as, as Zero. Um, I mean, look, look I, I, I saw Fiddler on the Roof when it was on the road, in Memphis, um, it, it, it toured obviously once, it, and, and there was a fellow named I think his name was Wolf, uh, who was uh, made a couple of other movies. Uh, you know, he, he was in you know, he was a lot of Israeli movies, yeah, Israeli movies, and he was also in some American films as well. Um, you know, it, it, you know, he he what I think the problem was he didn't mesh with the other American Yiddish actors. <laughs> that were in the film, Molly Pecan and others who were actually in the film, he sort of was seemingly from a different world. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I will tell you, though, that when I was a, a, a young boy um, and my parents took a, me to see it, and I remember we could only get seats way back in the back, and it was, and we, we all had these little um, binoculars <laughs> uh, that we, we had to try to look and see what was going on. It was Moitzoy Shabbos, and I remember my mother was pushing my father, go, we have to make Abdullah quick, 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 so we can go downtown and get our seats for these, the, 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 I don't know how many nights it was in the Memphis, Memphis Theater, sitting in that back row. But when he started singing, If I Were a Rich Man, and then he started saying, and the greatest thing of all, would be learning Torah day and night, right? Here, and I, it blew me away. I was there think, thinking, and that would be the sweetest thing of all. And I'm I saying, know, wow, but, but a couple of things that were very positive. That I agree with you was the highlight uh, for many. Uh, in the, I was, uh, I, I said, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah. learning Torah is the sweetest thing of all. But also the way he talked to a Kaddish Baruch the way he talked to God. I think is a is one of the most authentic things in that movie. In other words, or the play, where you know God is not viewed as some distant force, where He's an intimate friend, you know, where He talk, where He would talk to Him through the day, and that is really remarkable. Listen, you know, from you know the Shlom Aleichem story upon which it's based, Tevia the Dairyman, or Tevin is Tevia the Milachikil, Tevia yeah. the Milachikil. So uh, it certainly was kind of I don't I would, it was kind of it was kind of watered down. In other words, the last one of the last scenes where 
Tevye seems to grudgingly accept his daughter who was married out of the faith. That's not the original. That's not that's not Shalom Aleichem. You know, that was more for American audiences. But other than that, you know, it was... It well, wait, one second, hold on. What's, I, again, whether it was Topol or with the play that I saw, he says, there is no other hand, right? No, I'm, no, 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 100%. He does, he rejects it. And I remember as a young boy seeing it in the movie, getting up and applauding when he said that. However, there is no... You're right, but at the very end... At the very end, so- after the after when they have to leave the shtetl, and they come to say goodbye, you know, there seems to be... Somewhat Sometimes. of a rapprochement yes, and an yes. acceptance, yes. No, but you're right. When he says there is no other hand. I mean, uh, that it, it, it's like a lightning bolt. Yes, it is. It's a lightning bolt. There's a certain... Yes. Right, right. I mean, he accepted Motel Kobzoil, but, you know, it was... Uh, <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> I was very happy with Motel because, of course, that's my brother's name. And, right. You know, and, but, and there was but, no... But you, you kind of look like Motel Kobzoil. I guess you know now, especially in my in my dotage. <laughs> um, who does he get? Saito, Yedel. Who does he get? I forgot which oh, one he oh, gets. But, but Ava, Ava was the younger one. Yeah. Yes, but I remember in, in the movie, I was I was very happy that the youngest one was a redhead. Because I oh yes. Know, yes, yeah, yes, that was important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, look. Obviously, many people have talked about how uh, Fiddle on the Roof was really uh, trying to bury. Uh, European Judaism, and that America just saw it as a this little tchotchke to put on the shelf. But, it put it, on a, but I thought it was, I, still, I don't know, I thought it was a positive depiction. Yeah, it, 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 but, but you know there have been voices that have said yeah. that it's basically uh, a way to sort of fantasize a, a world that's completely yeah. gone. And look, I don't think, that's what I want to say, I don't think Topol, and I don't think the Israelis who were, who actually staged the play had the same mentality. I oh. think the New York uh, production, yeah. uh, whether it was Julie Stein or the people who put the play together, I think they saw, look, we've got a, we've got a Borscht Belt audience. Let's spread it out. Let's give you that aspect of that cutesy aspect of it. Let's take away the sting of Shalom Aleichem, which, of course, by the way, you can see a Yiddish version. Uh, it's available on YouTube of Marie Schwartz um, and, and others doing, uh, you know, Tevye. And I think it's closer to uh, the original in the, the Yiddish films. But I think, you know, I, I think Israelis see Fiddler on the Roof a little bit different. It's not as iconic. Uh, you know, yeah, the, Galut, right? the, you know, the negation of the, of the diaspora of Israeli culture, certainly in those days. Yeah. Less than a day. But uh, listen, for a lot of Jews, seeing that on film was. Uh, yes, uh, my, okay. I wanted to look, I want to tell you, my grandfather. Who was was trapped in Soviet Russia for for many many years? Um, it was a big event. He didn't. He, he only he had a very limited knowledge of English. But my mother wanted him to go when that movie came out, and he sat there. And it was such a simcha for him to see Jewish people uh, displayed on film um, and in their foibles, right? And not necessarily all noble, not necessarily all wise. Um, and I think that that was a, 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 in a way, a sort of a, a, a high watermark. By the way, you know, Paul Newman, getting back to what you were talking about, he visited near Israel because he was preparing for his role in the movie The Color of Money. That's why. He... <laughs> I see. <laughs> well, you know, we did, we, we used, we definitely enjoyed ourselves when we could sneak away to, to shoot some. It was a wonderful place for, uh, to 
get information on spies and intrigue and cloak and dagger. Yeah. Um, we remember, of course, our our wonderful Menahel, the great Sadik. Uh, you know, Rabbi Yes, yes, he was definitely Rabbi Yosef himself. We know that. Um, I don't think he ever had any greater simcha than when he would. You know, Neri was full of ganavit. You know, we talk about chemdas <laughs> hamamim. For some reason, you know, the Urimalite somehow came to Neri Like we always had ganavim, and and you know, of course, that the ganavim always struck on Shabbos. That was always where. Oh know, yeah, I remember. The ganavim always would burn. Like when everybody was getting cholent and kishka, the ganav would sneak out and go into the uh, dorm rooms, and because everybody's wallets and monies were not. I don't. Were, I don't remember anyone. Was anyone ever caught? So. I think again, they, they tried to hide who the, the Ganov was, but the Ganovim, uh, right? And if you remember, they Tenwar was so happy that he came up with a plan. Oh, they used to put powder or something. Right. So they put powder on the money. Oh, this I remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they put powder on the money. The money was stolen. Then there was a huge Kol Koyre right, that no, went okay. out in the whole yeah. that everybody has to show up. And, and, and they had to go under the fluorescent lamp. Yes. yes, you had to put your hand under the lamp, right? <laughs> and of it's course, like, so they caught them, right? Oh no! But the problem was that the same material in the in the in the it's also on the soap. There was, a was soap. also on dial right. soap. Dial soap. Right. Dial soap. <laughs> so there was one person who put his hands. He was like a real, you know, a, a clean cut. There was no question he wasn't the Ganif. And when he put his hands under the fluorescent lights. Right. He, they turned green, and Tenler thought he had the Ganif, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that he'd been using soap. Of course, this was uh, memorialized so beautifully in the Purim play, yes. where they actually, where they actually have uh, a, a commercial for dial soap. So, right? Nariusrol was definitely a place. And if Newman could get material, there's <laughs> a lot, there's a lot of screenplays that could have been made from there. Well, Topol, uh, we wish you, of course, a lichtiganet, and you brought a lot of simcha and and nachas uh, to people. And I think that um, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, your the type of legacy uh, that you have, I think, is something that we can. Brainer uh, gave you again. Eighty-seven is not bad. So we'll catch you again, Mir Hashem. Take care, everybody. Be well. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.